Falls. <laughs> so good to see you all here this morning, and good to have you guys joining us online as we're gathering together. Uh, so appreciated that worship set. And I hope you've been able to get out and enjoy this uh, unusually wonderful November that we've had. It's, it's been the best November I can remember. It's just been ah, so... Global warming does have its upsides. Not many, but if you're living in Minnesota, all right. Uh, I'm Greg Boyd, teaching pastor here. And with any, uh, with any luck, I will be losing this girdle by the, by, by the beginning of next year. So, all right. Meantime, just enjoy its sexiness. It's just so sexy. It's just... All right. Uh, we're going to take another pass at verses, uh, Re- Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. Uh, this is our 10th week in the series. Is that right, Mary? 10th week. And we're not yet past verse 8. Uh, so Jesus is coming soon, but that doesn't mean we're in a rush to get through the book of Revelation. Because it's just got so much good stuff in it. I tell you, I've just been, like, like I, I don't remember any other series where I've poured myself into, just out of sheer curiosity, poured myself into this. Because I've ignored the book of Revelation most of my life. And so now I'm pouring myself into it, really getting into it. And, and I, I, I will tell you, I, I am now confident to report that I think that this book, I'm going to go out on a limb here, but I think this thing is divinely inspired. <laughs> I, I just think it is. It's just got, no way could John on his own pull off some of the stuff he pulls off in this book. And it's just got, it's, its message is just too beautiful to be of just a human creation. Uh, we'll say more about that as we go on in this message. Uh, before I get to those verses, two preliminary little words. Uh, I mentioned about eight or nine weeks ago, uh, this book that was instrumental in me in turning me around and kind of beginning to change my opinion about the book of Revelation. Made it start to come alive. And it's Vern Eller's book. Uh, it's entitled The Most Revealing Book of the Bible. Um, it's a layperson's commentary. It's not like super scholarly or anything. It's kind of one of the things I like about it. Um, but it, it's no longer in print. And so that was kind of a disappointment because people were like, oh, where can I get it? And you're like, you can't. Well, uh, one of our parishioners found it online for free. And so if you go to this address here, can you put that up there? I just go uh, uh, hccentral.com slash LR7. LR7. That seven's got to be, have something to do with the book of Revelation because the book of Revelation is all about sevens. So anyways, uh, if you want to get that commentary, you can get it there. Second preliminary word. And a few of you need to listen to this one. So last week I talked about some of the scholarship of Richard Balcom, one of the top New Testament scholars in the world today. He's done some incredible work on Revelation. And I shared some of the scholarship that he brought forth in showing how John intentionally embeds numbers in his text as part of his message. And so we saw last week, I'm not going to go over it all, but there's all these different important phrases like Jesus and Christ and he who sits on the throne. And they're mentioned exactly seven times. Or sometimes 14 times, because it's 2 times 7, and 2 is the number of witness, 7 the number of totality, and so on and so on. There's a ton of these. And when you can think about how you know, he's, he's writing before there's any kind of technology, any kind of computers, uh, word search programs, or anything like that, he's writing on parchment. And to keep track of how many times did I say he was and is and is to come? Was that four or five times? And like, to go back and check, that's really hard. You've got to unroll this thing. Uh, just a, this year, I think it's divinely inspired. <laughs> it's just, it, it's got it going on. So um, here's the thing. It is appropriate, I think, to look for numbers and find significance in numbers in the book of Revelation because the book of Revelation is an apocalyptic book and we know that the apocalyptic genre trades in number symbolism. So it's appropriate. It's part of the genre. 
But don't take that mindset to the rest of the Bible, where you start looking for secret things hidden in the text of the Bible here and there. Uh, there's a lot of books out there that do that kind of thing, cracking the Bible code. And if you feed it into a computer program and run it backwards, sideways, upside down, and circular, you'll find his messages in it. And they're all sort of prophecies after the fact. You know, this word's connected to this word, this word. And the thing is, is with that methodology, you can find anything that you want to find or expect to find. I wouldn't waste your time on that stuff. Always seek to interpret every book of the Bible according to the intentions of its original authors. And when you start treating the Bible like a cryptogram, it's got secret messages in there. It kind of turns into a, a, almost a tarot card, right? And you're trying to divine the future by finding these secret messages. That's what the Bible calls divination. And it's uniformly against it. You're trying to divine things that aren't given to human beings to know. So stay away from that stuff. Revelation, apocalyptic books, a little bit in the book of Daniel. Yeah, you can find some numbers there because that's also apocalyptic. But otherwise, treat every book according to its genre. All right, let's read Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. One more time. John, whether he's the apostle or just a uh, prophet, prophet named John, he's well known to these churches. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, modern-day Turkey. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Paul, uh, John here is echoing the divine name in Exodus 3, 3, 14. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. We talked about that last week. This is a way of referring to the completeness of the Holy Spirit. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. We'll be talking more about that in a little bit. Ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests serving his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now look, look. He's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. So it is to be, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Lord, open our eyes, open our hearts, open our minds to receive your word in its fullness and its profundity and kingdomize our hearts and minds in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Three things I want to cover here uh, this morning. First of all, what's up with this coming in the clouds business? Secondly, what does it mean when it says every eye will look upon him whom uh, they have pierced? And then I want to say another word about Jesus being the ruler of the kings of the earth. Uh, this message is a little dense, all right? It's, uh, uh, but we're, we're, we're going to be touching on some really important foundational stuff in the book of Revelation. Um, we'll here see, as we look, look through these three motifs, we'll come to understand why this book is so often misinterpreted. And it's seen as being a book of doom and gloom, uh, where the majority of people are just going to get it and get the mark of the beast and fry and go to hell and all the rest. It's seen as the apocalyptic. It's kind of a negative word. When in fact, we're going to see this morning that this book is just so packed with hope. If you're looking for hope, and here's the profundity of the book of Revelation. It's written in such an such incredibly uh, careful way that 
It's like you can fight. If you are looking for a violent Jesus, you're going to find him in the book of Revelation. But if you're convinced that Jesus is the, the same Jesus that died for the world on the cross and, and the same Jesus that said, put away your sword. If you live by the sword, you die by the sword. If you trust in the character of God that's revealed in the earthly Jesus in the Gospels, well, then that's where you're going to find in the book of Revelation. It's like the book, we read the book of Revelation, but it also reads us. And what we find in the book of Revelation will say a lot about us and our assumptions and our beliefs. So follow along carefully, even though it's going to be kind of dense. All right. What's up with this cloud? Jesus, uh, the, Jesus coming with the clouds, John says here. Now, John is referring back to Daniel chapter 7. A real famous passage is quoted quite a bit in the New Testament. Uh, verses 13 and 14 says this. Uh, and Daniel has had here a vision of four successive beasts coming out of the sea. And they represent four different empires. And then after that, we read this. As I watched in the night visions, I saw one like a human being. Literally in the Hebrew, it's son of man. One like a human being coming with the clouds of heaven. And this son of man, then when he comes with the clouds of heaven, he establishes God's kingdom on earth forever and ever. So this is the vision of, of, of the end. Um, now, I was taught when I was first a Christian that that's supposed to be taken literally. Because in Acts 1, Jesus ascended up into heaven. And he says, just as I'm going away, you'll see me come back the same way. And so people are expecting personalized, five foot six, five foot four, however tall he was, Jesus returning on the clouds. And I was taught it was literal. And I had to wonder, and I even asked this one time and kind of got rebuked for it, but, but I asked the question, well, if he's coming, if Jesus is coming back, the particular Jesus is coming back on a particular set of clouds, kind of like surfing the clouds as he's coming back, how is every eye in every, of all the tribes of the earth going to see him? <laughs> how is anyone going to see him? You need binoculars to see a, a guy sitting on top of the clouds. That was an honest question. If you're taking it literally, it's kind of problematic but I don't think it's something we're supposed to be taking literally. Uh, the background to that is, is, is this. In the ancient Near East, all of the deities rode on clouds. That's because throughout most of history, heaven's been thought of as up. We still think about it that way, going up to heaven. Even though we don't know that cosmologically it can't be up or down or sideways or whatever, uh, it's not like heaven's located in some corner of the galaxy. Uh, but that's how they thought about it throughout most of history. And so the clouds, which are up there, highest things we know of, well, for the, for, for the deities to ride in the clouds is a way of saying they're riding on that divine authority, that, that divine transcendence, that majesty, that power. And so we find a lot of hymns sung to various, sung to various deities that are talking about God riding in the clouds. Now, the Hebrew, the Hebrews, ancient Israelites, they're part of the ancient Near Eastern culture, and so they absorb that way of talking about God. And so, for example, you see this all over the place. I'll give you a couple of, uh, just a few examples. Psalm 68. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides upon the clouds. Be exultant before him. As he looks down on us from the clouds. He rides in the clouds. Praise him. Psalms 104. You, Lord, stretch out your, the heavens like a tent. You set the beams of your chambers on the waters. And that these are the waters that circle the earth. So we're dealing here with an ancient cosmology. You make the clouds your chariot, and you ride on the wings of the wind. That's how all ancient people, th people thought about 
uh, about the deities. So that's how the ancient Hebrews thought about Yahweh. He rides on those clouds. There's chariots. One more verse. Uh, in Isaiah 14, we find the king of Tyre being boastful and, 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 and trying to usurp God. And he becomes a symbol of Satan. Okay, and so here's what Satan says in Isaiah 14. He says, I will ascend to the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. So the most high, is the, he's, the reason he's most high is because he's highest. He's on the highest clouds. And this king of Tyre, kind of embodying the spirit of Satan, and that's how the later tradition interpreted him, he's saying, I'm going to ascend to the highest clouds because I want to be like the most high. So the, the clouds represent power and majesty. And it may be that the, that the ancient Hebrews took that literally, but like so many other things, it, things change over time. And so those clouds just became a symbol of majesty and power. Uh, and so when it says Jesus is returning on the clouds, uh, it, it just means he's going to come back in power, going to come back in authority. And it's always important that we remember that in all this language, we're talking in metaphors. So we really don't have a, a clear, literal picture of what it's going to literally look like when, when, when the Lord returns or when the Lord appears. And I mentioned before, several weeks ago, that there's different ways of talking about this. The Lord appearing, the parousia, the manifestation, and all the rest. These are all different metaphors. So we don't have a real clear idea, literally, of how this is going to unpack. And it's important to us to remember that. Because uh, folks who think they have a clear idea of how it's actually going to unfold, well, I think they lead a lot of folks astray. All we know about this, this appearing of Jesus at the end is that it's going to happen suddenly. Uh, we're to be looking for it. And it's going to transform everything. That's what we know. Uh, all these other things are just expressions, ways of expressing this monumental event and how God's going to wrap up and bring to a close this present world epic. Okay, secondly, what's up with this? Every eye will see him whom they have pierced. And all the tribes of the earth will wail. Now, I, what I was taught, and I bet some of you were taught the same thing when I was first a Christian, is that this, uh, this wailing is a wailing of of, of uh, doom. They're wailing because they now realize that they missed it. They weren't ready for the Lord's return. So they're going to be left behind and they're going to take the mark of the beast and they're going to get their head cut off and the harlot's going to drink their blood and it's going to be as terrible and they're probably all going to go to hell. It's a really negative picture. All the tribes are going to wail. Oh no! It's only those select few Christians who knew that they were looking for Jesus to return on the clouds who are going to be caught up into the air and go away someplace to be with him. That's how I was taught, and I bet some of you were taught the same thing. Now, when you're reading the book of Revelation, it's always important to kind of look at the, at, at the background. What verses is he referring to? Because often, John, in making reference to a verse, is going to assume that you're aware of that verse, and it fills out the meaning of what he's saying. So in this case, John is not quoting, but he's alluding to, uh, paraphrasing Zechariah chapter 12. Uh, verses 10 and 11, 19 and 11, actually. And, and here's what it says. Here's what it says. And on that day I will seek, this is the Lord speaking here, Yahweh, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Lock that in. And I will pour out, and the, the and here, it's a vav in Hebrew, it, it can be a contrastive or a conjoining. Contrastive would be like, by contrast, I am going to pour out my spirit of compassion. So he's going to destroy the nations, but on Israel, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, he's going to pour out a spirit of compassion. And the word there in Hebrew is chen. 
And pour out a spirit of compassion and supplication on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Why? So that when they look on the one whom they pierced, and in the Hebrew it's actually on me whom they've pierced. When they look upon me whom they have pierced, they will mourn for me as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. So in Zechariah's vision of this end time, this final judgment, all the nations that are against Israel are destroyed, but Israel is favored. And in contrast to how God treats the other nations, now he's going to pour out his favor on him. And he pours out this, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of compassion. This word chen, when it's describing a person's disposition towards another, it means favor or grace. So the Lord shows favor or grace, chen, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem. But when it's describing a person's internal emotions, it means something like compassion. And in this verse, I submit to you, it means both. Because in contrast to the nations that are against Israel that the Lord is seeking to destroy on Israel, and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the house of David, he's going to pour out, he's going to show favor by pouring out the spirit of compassion so that they will be having compassion. Somehow, some way, God's going to create a compassion in their heart. Now, compassion towards who? Towards what? And the answer is towards him. As Yahweh pours out a spirit of compassion on his people, their eyes are opened to see the one whom they've pierced. And when they see the one whom they've pierced, they mourn. They cry. It says they wail for him. They're not wailing for themselves. They're wailing for him. And they're wailing for him as one would wail for a child, their child that just died. Their eyes are open to see just what they've done, the truth of the one that they've pierced. And it brings them to a point of wailing, but not a wailing of we're doomed. It's a wailing of what have we done? What have we done? And it's a wailing then that leads to supplication. And the supplication is calling upon God, calling out for mercy. They're wailing. What have we done? They're mourning for the one whom they have pierced. It's not gloom and doom. This is a wailing that leads to repentance and leads to restoration, as the book of Zechariah really makes clear. Um, He opens up their eyes so they see the truth. Now, here's the thing. This author in Zechariah, 500 years before the time of Christ, he refers to Yahweh as, Yahweh refers to himself as the one whom they've pierced. Me whom they've pierced. That idea was so offensive to ancient Jews that Yahweh could be pierced. Because that word literally means to be run through with a sword, to, have, to be punctured. And so they wondered, how could Yahweh, a spirit being, be punctured? Have you run through with a sword? And, and so some ancient scribes assumed that the passage must mean something different. And so they changed it to, they'll look upon the one whom they've pierced. But in the original Hebrew, it's, they'll look upon me whom they've pierced. Now it's not clear what Zechariah could be referring to because how could Yahweh be pierced? And yet, 500 years later, when John witnesses Jesus on the cross, and as he's hanging there on the cross, He's now deceased, and a guard comes along and drives his spear through the side of Jesus just to make sure he's dead. And then John connects the dots. In John 19, he says, this, is, this fulfills that which was written by the prophet Zechariah. Well, he doesn't mention Zechariah. But he just mentions, this fulfills that which was written. Up, they will look upon me whom they have pierced. And now it makes total sense. He's saying Jesus is Yahweh being pierced. And then in Revelation, whether it's the same John or a different John, I think it's the same John, 
But in Revelation, he applies it to Jesus appearing at the end. Uh, and, and he's saying then that a spirit of compassion is being poured out on God's people so that they now can see what they've done. They see the truth of who Yahweh is and the truth of what they've done to Yahweh. And that, that, the, the wailing and the grief that they have, all the tribes of the earth will wail, that is a kind of judgment. It's not a pleasant experience. They're wailing. In fact, in Zechariah 12, he goes to great lengths to, to just express that the severity of this wailing is true grief, but not a grief for themselves. That's a grief for what they've done. And as happens very frequently throughout the Bible, the way God brings about this is he just... Well, the, the way the Bible often describes it is people's sin ricochets uh, back on their head. It falls back on their head. You find this motif all over the place. I talk about it a lot in Crucifixion of the Warrior God. Uh, it, it's the way that the Bible describes judgment. And remember, there's a lot of different metaphors that describe second coming and God's judgment. Some of the metaphors are legal, where you have God on the throne, he's pronouncing judgment. That's way, one way of thinking about it. But most of the metaphors are organic in nature. Organic. Natural cause and effect. And one of the ways that God brings about judgment is by wiring things in the creation such that people's sin eventually comes back on them. They see what they've done. One of the best verses that expresses this, and there's a lot of them, but one of my favorites is Hebrews, or Habakkuk, chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, where Habakkuk says, or the Lord actually says through Habakkuk, okay, now it's your turn, and he's going to talk about the wicked now. Go ahead and drink and let your nakedness be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you, and disgrace will cover your glory. Listen to this. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and your own destruction of animals will terrify you. Isn't that just amazing? Okay, this cup, the cup in the Lord's hand, that's throughout the Old Testament, uh, especially in the prophets, that, that, that becomes a symbol of God's judgment. Uh, that's why when Jesus says, let this cup pass from me, he's saying, I don't want to bear the consequences for the sin of the world. Can you let this cup pass from me? It's a cup of God's judgment. So this is, he's talking about judgment here, about this particular group of, of, of wicked people. And the way this judgment comes about, first of all, he says, your own drunkenness is going to expose your nakedness. Now, in ancient Israel, to be seen naked by anyone other than your spouse was considered the most shameful thing imaginable. And so the author is here saying is that your own drunkenness is going to bring your own shame to light. Your own behavior is going to bring shame on you. And that is the judgment of God. The shame that's going to cover you. And here's what it's going to look like. You are going to see all the, the violence that you did in Lebanon. And when, you, when your eyes are opened up to see the value, the precious value of all the lives that you trampled on and squandered and tortured and dehumanized, it's going to overwhelm you. But not only that, when you see the destruction that you brought to animals, when you see the preciousness of these animals that you treated like just nothing, worthless, and just run, run, rush out over them, when you see the wrong that you've done, it's going to terrify you. That's a divine judgment. And I appreciate the fact that he mentions the destruction of animals because a lot of people seem to have this crazy idea that God doesn't care about how you treat animals or about your food choices. He cares about that stuff. And in the end, we see the truth of what we've done. This is why throughout the Bible, you find the day of the Lord or, or the, the judgment day described as turning on the light, seeing what is real, things secret being brought out, things that were hidden being shouted from the housetops. Reality will be made known on that day. 
and all deception will be wiped aside. You'll see the harm that you've done, and it will terrify you. That's the judgment of God. But note, it's not a terror that's supposed to go on through eternity. The terror is supposed to lead somewhere. And the terror, when you realize what you've done, is to lead to repentance and ultimately lead to restoration because all of God's judgments are done out of love with the intention, with the hope at least, of ultimate restoration. But I want to ask to notice another important thing that John does with this passage. Uh, in Zechariah, all the nations, other than Israel, God seeks, all the ones that are against Israel, he seeks to destroy. And it's only on the inhabitants of Jerusalem that God pours out the spirit of supplication. The spirit of compassion that leads to a spirit of supplication and then restoration. But in John, let's look at John's verse again. He says this. John says, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Do You see the difference here. Zechariah, it's only the inhabitants of Jerusalem who see the Lord. And all of the ones who see the Lord mourn because they pierced him. They will look upon the one whom they pierced. When John cites it, those who pierced Jesus are a subset of all those who see Jesus. All the tribes of the earth see him and wail. Even those, not only those, but even those who pierced him. And so, as frequently happens throughout the book of Revelation, and we'll be highlighting this as we go along, Promises that were made specifically to Israel or to Judah, people of God in the Old Testament, John takes and he universalizes it and he captures God's heart. That God's heart's always been for the whole earth, for all the peoples of the earth. He's never been a parochial God. He's always been an all-inclusive God. And so here it's all the tribes of the earth will see him and they will, they will wail because of him. And the, that means that John is giving us a vision the wailing, the grieving is supposed to uh, lead to repentance, and the repentance leads to restoration. And so here John is giving us this magnificent vision of a future where all people, all tribes, are going to see the wrong they've done, repent of the wrong they've done, and be restored in a relationship with Yahweh. It's such a, I find this, this vision uh, that goes throughout the book of Revelation to be so much more beautiful, so much more helpful, and so much more compelling than the one that I got when I was first a Christian. Yeah, most of the world's going to go to hell. Most of the world's going to be lost. Us, us Christians, we're the only saved group. Everyone else is lost. And it's just, looking at the world that way, all people, it's, it's, it's such a negative, dark way of looking at that world. Even though it's one that, you know, life was filled with guns and war, and everyone got trampled on the floor. I wish we'd all been ready. And, and, and so we, we the luckies get raptured out of here. Everyone else is going to hell in a handbasket. It's just not very, whoa, joy of the Lord. Most people are going to hell. But John gives us this vision of, of all the tribes coming to see what they've done. All the tribes coming to see who Yahweh is. All the tribes of the earth coming to see the wrong that they've done to Yahweh. And all the tribes of the earth therefore repenting and ultimately being restored. Hallelujah. I just find that to be such a, I can now look at, at every person out there as a pre-Christian. You know, God, God's working in their life. Uh, now, no, we got to be careful because all these things are metaphors. And so we can't draw a dogmatic conclusion from any one picture. So because John says all the tribes of the earth, it doesn't necessarily mean that every, every individual is going to be saved. You've got to be careful about that. Because throughout the book of Revelation, we'll see that people have got free will. And how they respond to things depends on, on what happens in terms of God's judgments. Not only that, but at the end of the book of Revelation, we find that when the heavenly city comes down, which is the bride of Christ, we talked about that last week or the week before, um, but there are still people outside the heavenly city. 
practicing their abominations. And the doors of the heavenly city are always open. The door of the bride of Christ is always open. The invitation's there. So there's this hope that eventually the people will come in. But the book ends with them being out there and they don't want to come in. And God never forces anyone to do anything. So be careful about that. But still there is this hope, this universal hope. And, and, and it's combined with the, the truth that everybody has to choose for themselves. But living with that. So when I look at people now, I, 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 look, I know that God's working in their life. I know that God has claimed them. And I see them as, as, as pre-Christian. And, and maybe it's the case that God would even open up a door to help me, uh, help them come to the realization of who they are because of what Jesus has done for them. All right, it's all metaphors. Finally, and this will show a lot about the nature of God's judgment. Let's talk about the kings, uh, Jesus as the ruler of the kings of the earth. And it's an important point because throughout most of the book of Revelation, it doesn't look like Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now these kings... These just are the most powerful, wealthy people that John knows on the planet at his time. Okay, so the kings represent uh, those who have a, the power, the movers and shakers of the world. Uh, the ones who are living the good life, who got their best life now. They got the life that the other 99%, this is the one percenters, and the other 99% what they want what they've got. Uh, this is the yacht life. This is the I get to have my own way life. This is the, the world is my playground life. This is I got all the power kind of life. Everyone aspires towards that. So the kings are the winners at the Babylonian game. Babylon being a symbol of all worldly empires. And the game is always to get ahead, to get as much power and wealth and comfort as you can, because this life is all that matters. That's the Babylonian mindset. And so throughout the book of Babylon, throughout the book of Babylon, throughout the book of Revelation, the kings are the number one villain. Okay, these are the bad guys. These are the number one human enemies of God. They're the ones who are the movers and shakers in Babylon, this ungodly city. Uh, what's interesting is that these kings, they think that they're calling the shots. They think they rule. They think they got the power. But we'll find as we go throughout the book of Revelation that, in fact, these kings are simply pawns. They're cronies. They're, they're, they're pawns of the dragon. They're pawns of the beast. And they're pawns of the, the, false, uh, the, 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 the false prophet. False prophet being a symbol of, of uh, ungodly religion. Faith that's united with Babylon interests. Faith in service to Babylon interests. That's, that's a false prophet. It's a symbol. The beast is a symbol of political power. And the dragon is a symbol of Satan. Uh, it's, it's sometimes they're, they're referred to the, the ungodly, the antichrist trinity of the book of Revelation. And these kings throughout the book of Revelation are pawns. They follow the orders of these folks without knowing it. So the kings think that they've got power, but they are deceived. And that's a major point because throughout the book of Revelation, the main battle is a battle between truth and lies, truth and deception. And it captures that because, and as a matter of fact, the battle throughout all of history has been a battle between truth and lies. It goes back to Genesis 3, when, when, when Satan first lied to human beings about who God was and painted a false picture about God's character. And at the root of all sin is that false picture of God root of all of it. It's a battle between truth and lies. And these kings now become sort of caught in the crossfire of that. Throughout the book of Revelation, they are sold out to lies. Well, let's look at what happens to them. Starting in Revelation 16, the, the, the ungodly trinity lures the kings of the earth to declare war against the Lamb. And so the kings of the earth and all their armies and all their captains and all their riders and all their horses gather together for this end time battle. This, folks, is Armageddon. You've read a lot about that or heard a lot about that. Armageddon. 
the big battle at the end of history. Let's look at it. It happens in, in Revelation 19. And this is just, it just shows how John ingeniously just is able to take traditional images and turn them on their head. You got, but you got to be reading it carefully. Listen to this. Uh, then I saw heaven open, John says, and there was a white horse, and its rider is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. That's Jesus. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. That's Jesus. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a scepter of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Hallelujah. He'll trample down his enemies like they're grapes under his toes, squishing them like you would a grape in a, in a wine press. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name inscribed, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Oh, it looks pretty bad. He's going to rule with an iron scepter. That's a symbol of military might. It looks like he's going to just mercilessly crush his foes under his feet. But it gets worse. Listen to this. In seven, verse 17, he says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly in midheaven, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of the mighty, the flesh of the horses, the flesh of the riders, flesh of all, both free and slave, both small and great. Let's eat all the flesh. Ha <laughs> ha! And then after the false prophet and the beast are thrown into the the lake of fire, and remember we're talking about symbols there, not conscious beings, but then we read this, and the rest were killed by the sword of the rider of the horse, the sword that came from his mouth, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. They're full eating all that flesh. Isn't that just delightful? So let's turn to him 777 and sing, Jesus, what a gentle savior. <laughs> What's up with this? It sounds like something out of Chainsaw Massacre or something, you know? Uh, Texas Chainsaw, whatever that terrible show is. Now, now, here's the thing. John is quoting Ezekiel 39, and the whole thing about being devoured by wild animals, that's a way of expressing the total defeat of an enemy. You so decimated the enemy that even their bodies didn't, were left around. The birds ate it. It's also a way of saying that they died a shameful death because to not get a proper burial in, Jewish, in the Jewish worldview was considered absolutely uh, shameful. So it's a shameful, complete, utter destruction of your foes. And that's the kind of thing I mean, this gore, this level of gore is the kind of thing you expect given that this is an apocalyptic book. In apocalyptic literature, there's a lot of violence, so you expect that. And John does not disappoint. He gives his audience exactly what they would expect from an apocalyptic book. But I want us to notice a few things that are curious. And the fact that this Jesus, who's the king of the slaughter fest, all this gore and all that, the fact that that is completely inconsistent with the Jesus who's found in the Gospels should be an indication to us that something's up. We've got to look a little closer. Reading on the surface, you might agree with Mark Driscoll. Mark Driscoll famously said this 10, 12 years ago. He said that Jesus in the book of Revelation, he's a pride fighter. That's a cage fighter. And, and he's got a tattoo coming down his thigh, which is the king of kings and lord of lords. And he comes with a commitment, a sword in hand, and a commitment to make someone bleed. I, uh, Jesus of the Gospels doesn't do much of that, does he? Commitment to make someone bleed? Excuse me, he, put, he told people, put away your sword. Because if you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. 
See, you can see how Mark Driscoll got that impression, but I submit to you that when we come up with an image of Jesus, God, that's inconsistent with what's revealed on the cross, it's time to look closer. So notice a couple of really interesting details here. Number one, Jesus' robe is dipped in blood, right? And the word dip there is baptane in Greek. We get the word baptize from it, and the word literally means to immerse. So don't think that Jesus had the corner of his cloak dipped in blood. Or a little blood stain. No, the whole thing was dipped in blood. It was baptized. Jesus was covered in blood. And this is an image that goes back to Isaiah 63, where Yahweh is portrayed as coming back from battle where he slaughtered his enemies. And Yahweh is covered with blood. And he, Yahweh squashes his enemies like, 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 like grapes in a wine press. And the blood splatters all over him. But it's a badge of honor. Because he, he splattered their blood, his enemy's blood, but his blood didn't get splattered. So it's a heroic thing, covered with blood. But notice in the book of Revelation, Jesus is covered in blood before he goes into battle. And before he ever steps on anyone in a wine press. That's interesting. And if he's not shedding their blood, because he hasn't shed it yet, well, whose blood is he covered with? And the answer in the book of Revelation is his own. Because this is the slain lamb all along. This is how he does warfare. This is the slain lamb does warfare. And it, 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 what John is saying here is that Jesus is a mighty warrior, a ferocious warrior, but he, 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 he does warfare not by shedding the blood of others, but by allowing his own blood to be shed out of love for others. See that? Second thing is just notice that there's no battle here. There's no battle uh, the, the, the beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire, but they don't put up any resistance because they're symbols. And then everybody else, the rest are just slain by the sword that comes out of Jesus' mouth. Um, and apparently there's no pushback. Jesus doesn't take a hit. He doesn't get it marked. His army doesn't lift a finger because the only weapon that's used is a sword that's coming out of his mouth. Um, that's kind of strange. What kind of battle is that? <laughs> you know, there's no give and take here. It's just one-sided. Third thing is to note that the, the sword comes out of Jesus' mouth. Mark Driscoll's wrong. He's not carrying a sword in his hand. It's coming out of his mouth. And that's the only thing he uses to defeat his enemies. Now, if you're really into taking the Bible literally, try this one out. So Jesus is riding into battle. His hand's tied behind his back just to show that he can do it without his hands. His sword's coming out of his mouth. And now he's coming against all the armies of the earth, all the captains, all the kings, all their, their horses, all their weaponry, and he slaughters them all. With a sword coming out of his mouth. Can you imagine the, the delts on this guy, the neck muscles he must have had? This is Jesus super ninja, slaughtering everybody with his sword. Wow. Or maybe it's not meant to be taken literally. The sword, you find it five times in the book of Revelation, and it's the word of God. It's Jesus speaks the truth. And so if Jesus slaughters people by speaking the truth, clearly what gets slaughtered is not actual people. But lies. Truth slaughters lies. And so these kings are slaughtered insofar as they're identified with lies. Insofar as they're deceived. Insofar as they have this false identity. That's what gets slaughtered. Not actual people. The final thing for us to notice about this is this. If you go to the next chapter or two chapters later, we read this. The nations will walk by its light and the kings will bring their glory into it. He's a description of the, the heavenly city, the bride of Christ. And now the kings, these nasty kings, the number one villain in the book of Revelation, uh, these kings who just got slaughtered and whose flesh just got eaten, now they're bringing the glory 
of their nations into the heavenly city and laying it at the throne of the cross. Somehow, someway, when these kings were slaughtered by the word of Jesus, coming, the sword coming out of his mouth, somehow their encounter with the parousia of Jesus, this appearing of Jesus at the end, somehow, someway, it transforms them from being kings who are trying to hoard the glory of their nation just for themselves, and now they become transformed to become kings who freely submit the glory of their nation and contribute to the beauty of the bride. They further adorn the bride of Christ. What happened there? And I, tell, I submit to you that if we take it from, if we take our cues from Revelation 1-7 and from the pattern we find throughout the Bible, so we, and we don't know the process, we don't know how long it took, we don't know any of the details, but it seems to me that these kings, when lies are slaughtered, they see truth. When lies are slaughtered, they see truth. And when they look upon the one whom they pierced, and when they look upon the people whom they trod upon, when they look upon the animals that they have destroyed, when they look upon the environment that they have desecrated, they're horrified by it. They're terrified by it. It slaughters them. It completely dismantles them. But God's judgments, as harsh as they are, are always motivated by love and always with a hope of redemption. And it seems here that these kings woke up to the reality. I don't know how long it would take, but somehow when they encounter Jesus and are slaughtered by his word, they're transformed by his word and now become people who contribute to the glory of, of, of the body of Christ. And again, we can't conclude from this that every individual is going to be saved because people are free to stay outside the city as long as they want. But the punchline here is, is this, folks. Uh, if there's hope for the kings of the earth, uh, those, those nasty folks who are God's number one enemy throughout the book of Revelation and throughout all of history, if there's hope for them, then there's hope for everybody. And there, that means there's hope for you. So I end with this, uh, this word. I mean, there's hope for you. Somebody here needs to hear that. You maybe are one of these people that you just think that you're, you, you've been canceled, that you, you've gone too far, you've done too much wrong, you've hurt too many people, your sins have been too vile, or maybe you just think you're too screwed up to ever get your act together, so there's no hope for you. And I get that. The world can do that to you. The world can, can beat, beat life right out of you, but I'm telling you, it's a lie. It's a lie. It is a lie. You are not, uh, it's impossible for you to put yourself outside of the scope of God's love. Impossible. Because God is love and he's the creator of the universe. And I don't care how big your sin is, God's grace is bigger. I don't care how terrible, how intense your evil was, God's love for you is even more intense. And where grace, where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. Hallelujah. You are not outside of God's hope. Not at all. No, if there's hope for the kings of the earth, there is hope for you. And I encourage you just to accept, you may, it may seem so incongruous in your brain, because you're so, you, you so are convinced that you're hopeless, but can you just trust that, in fact, there's hope for you. God's working in your life. God loves you. God can restore you. God can transform you. If he did it to the kings, he can do it to you. And then one last thing I'll say is that for the rest of us, uh, our job is to look at everybody with that hope, through the eyes of hope. And, and, and just imagine them, what this person will be like when they finally get it, when they finally wake up to their, their own value and the value of God and the value of others and the value of animals in the earth. How will, imagine how their, their life will be different and start praying in that direction. Start praying and be open to God using you to help them move in that direction. That, folks, is the kingdom of God. That's what it's all about. Um, when you read the book of Revelation, trust in the character of God. Look closer and you'll find some beautiful, amazing, magnificent things because it gives us this hope that is, it could not be more beautiful. And frankly, in a world that's becoming unraveling and seems to be getting darker and darker, and I don't know when that's going to turn around, but the, the darker it gets, the more precious this hope gets. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Look at people 
all the people in your life through the lens of Jesus. And if you're feeling hopeless, you grab onto Jesus. Let him grab onto you. It's going to be okay. God bless you. Don't forget we've got uh, prayer up front uh, if you're in the house here and need prayer. Or you've got prayer online if you could use prayer. We've got our Tuesday Musecast. I uh, encourage you to get, be part of that. We've got our gathering groups um, that uh, we encourage you to be a part of. And you guys, God's moving. I'm so glad you're a part of this. Let's keep on riding this wave, the spirit wave, because it's, 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 getting, it's getting fun. God bless you guys. Love you. Go out and love on the world.